From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Now that Denver's airport has fired its contractor, what's next for the massive remodeling project? And what does it say about public-private partnerships? This was supposed to be a model for the city. Then the National Institutes of Health looks to Colorado for new ways to break the pain and opioid addiction cycle. It goes beyond just pain management. Plus, uranium tailings were once used in buildings in Durango. And not all of it was removed during a cleanup effort 30 years ago. Also, portrait artist and Denver native Jordan Castile, who approaches strangers to paint them. It's crazy. It's baffling to me every time um, that 99.9%, I can't even recall a moment where somebody has said no. This weekend is the last chance to see her first major museum exhibit. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The troubled $700 million-plus remodel of the interior of Denver International Airport took a dramatic turn Tuesday. The CEO of the airport, Kim Day, stepped before the media to drop a bombshell. Um, Last night, Den issued a notice of termination to Great Hall Partners, the developer of Den's Great Hall Project. The Great Hall Project was supposed to be a model for the future, a public-private partnership that would remake the inside of the main terminal under the white tents. In the end, the relationship between the airport and the contractor devolved into finger-pointing and eventually a divorce. We are very far apart in terms of cost and schedule and our values, prioritizing safety, the passengers' experiences, and our airline operations. Still, it's a split that will be costly for the airport as they search for a new contractor in the middle of construction. CPR's Ben Marcus continues to follow the story and joins us now. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me again. Ben, first, quickly, what is the aim of all this construction in the first place? So this has been going on for a while, this construction. I still get these questions. What the heck is going on in there? Uh, So you see all the walls out there. What they're trying to do is move security off of the main floor. So on the fifth floor, you see those giant security lines stretch out in both directions. They want to get that close to ticketing. And so you will get through security and be let out onto a new great hall, which will be open and there will be shops and restaurants and you'll mill about and supposedly you'll spend money at these shops and restaurants, bringing more revenue into the airport and improving the traveler experience. All those businesses you can see in the security line, the idea is you'll have time to hang out there. And what happened? How did things fall apart so quickly? So we talked recently that canceling the contract would be the nuclear option. Well, it it turns out that at 10 o'clock Monday night, they pushed the button. Um, So the contractor had claimed earlier this summer that the project was already three years behind schedule, maybe $300 million over budget. Uh, The contractor was pointing the finger at the airport, saying that they made a bunch of design changes, that they weren't communicating. The city, though, said it was the contractor's fault. They pointed to safety risks sloppy construction. Uh, Great Hall Partners, which is developing uh, the project, or was, um, was a partnership between Ferrovial, which is based in Madrid, and Saunders, which is local. And Kim Day, the CEO of the airport, had said that Saunders had experience at the airport, um, but they weren't as involved in this construction. So that may have led to some of the problems they had. So the airport has terminated the contract with Great Hall Partners. Now what? 
So Great Hall Partners has 90 days to hand over the project to the airport. Uh, the airport has to go through the standard procurement process to find a new contractor. Um, they're going to have to change the scope of the project, they said, to keep it within some kind of budget. Um, Kim Day said the airport does own the design work that was done by Great Hall Partners. Um, Great Hall Partners forcefully denies all of the city's charges in a statement to us last night. They said it was weak concrete in the original construction of the airport that is to blame for uh, the delays, big changes in design that the airport made. But they said in the end, they will professionally leave the job site. And this was not your ordinary contract. This was a public and private partnership that was expected to last for three decades. Can you explain a little more about that? Yeah, so this is what they call a P3, public-private partnership. The contractor finances a little bit of the upfront construction cost to get the project going, but they get some revenue on the back end. So Great Hall Partners was going to run the retail in the Great Hall and share the proceeds from the airport. Um, Kim Day says now that they're canceling the contract, the airport will run these retail and they'll make some money off that because they won't have to share it with Great Hall Partners. Um But yeah, so they're not looking for another private partnership deal to finish this. They're looking for a standard construction contract to get this finished. The airport is owned and operated by the city of Denver. Some on the council are calling for an examination of these types of deals. Is that right? Yeah, so Councilman Kevin Flynn, a longtime transportation reporter at the Rocky Mountain News, now a city councilman, he's calling for an examination of these kinds of deals. Is there some kind of fatal flaw in them that leads to these big problems? Uh, for his part, Mayor Michael Hancock said that this isn't a P3 problem in particular. Problems like this can develop on any big complex project. They happen on just your standard construction contract contracts as well. And Hancock says they've learned a lot from this and will continue to deploy P3 models in other big projects like the National Western Stock Show. Is Kim Day, the CEO of DIA, is her job safe? Um, So I asked Denver Mayor Michael Hancock himself yesterday if her job was safe. Kim Day has not been asked to resign. In fact, I've asked Kim to lead the the correction of this challenge um, uh, going forward. And so, um, you know, I, I expect and have confidence in Kim to do that. So Kim Day was saying yesterday when she was asked if the airport had made any mistakes, she really was like, no, we haven't made any mistakes in picking this developer. Um, This is just a mutual parting eventually, but it doesn't seem that way. Uh, But still, the mayor is sticking behind the CEO of the airport. Uh, And the mayor agrees that this is an extreme step to fire the contractor. But he said this had to be done to protect the airport from irreparable damage, he said, and the damage to the brand of the airport as well. So we'll see in the coming months uh, what their plan is for fixing this, because right now half the airport in the main terminal is under construction. Because this construction is still ongoing. We're still in the middle of it. Ben, thank you for joining us. Thank you. CPR's Ben Marcus tracked the beleaguered remodeling project of DIA's Great Hall and the decision to fire the public-private contractor handling it. An opioid addiction can start with real chronic pain and a prescription, but treatment for addiction and pain are disjointed. Pain management clinics are not typically set up to treat drug addiction, and programs that treat drug addiction are not usually equipped to deal with chronic pain. The director of clinical health psychology at the University of Colorado Denver is developing a program to treat both pain and addiction at the same time. Amy Wachholz, welcome. Thank you for having me. 
before we get into your new research, let's talk about what we know about opioid addiction and pain. You say that pain patients are the most vulnerable to opioid addiction. Why is that? Well, certainly there's a number of ways that we have kind of set up in our system to increase the vulnerability of patients that are struggling with chronic pain um, to be more likely to experience opioid addiction. One, they ha- they receive high levels of, of opioids, and so certainly just having that cr- chronically in their body is going to make it more likely that there's just more available. Um, and so they're more likely to be using the medications both as prescribed and also having the risk of using them as not prescribed, as well as by having it in the house and things along those lines, there may be increased risk for things like diversion. Um, there might be people that are coming over that are taking them out of their medication cabinets, family members and things like that as well. So not only a risk of addiction for that pain patient, but also for other individuals that are in their social network. Um, and then certainly we're setting people up for What does opioids take away when somebody has a chronic pain condition? Somebody's experiencing a lot of negative um, feelings from their body. Oftentimes, chronic pain can also lead to isolation and depression um, because somebody, maybe they're not allowed to, they can't work anymore. Maybe they're having to decline social engagements, and so they're losing their social network. Maybe they're um, not as engaged with their friends and family members as they would like to be. Maybe they're not able to do their hobbies the way that they used to be. And so that all of the things that oftentimes give people joy um, starts to decline. And we know that opioids can affect both the signals that are coming from the body related to pain, but also work on the same tracks in the brain where things like depression and anxiety also lie. And so opioids will take all of those negative feelings away as well as the negative physical component away. So pain is this really complex experience. And I think that opioids also, they can increase the body's sensitivity to pain. Is that right? Absolutely. We we know from other research that it only takes about one month of what's called steady state opioid use. Even if people take it exactly as prescribed, if they're on opioids for one month and those opioids are always in their body, it actually develops a, a situation of what's called hyperalgesia, where someone can actually become more sensitive to pain, where the body, where the, the signals that are coming from the body related to pain actually go up. And so it becomes this cycle then where somebody is experiencing more pain due to their opioids, but not realizing that it's coming from their opioids. And so they ask for more opioids, which then also elevate the hyperalgesia, which then lead to more requests for more opioids. And it becomes this really um, difficult spiral. And that's something that can happen if somebody's taking their medication just like they're being told to. It, it can happen to anybody, even if they're exactly on target, exactly how their um, physician or their prescriber is telling them to take those medications. How long does it take for that to go away after someone stops taking opioids? Well, and that's part of the really concerning part. So some of the, the research that I've done in my lab has shown that it can We've tested people that have been off of all opioids for um, two to three years, and they're still showing the hyperalgesic response. So to the best of my knowledge, my studies followed people out the furthest, and after like I said, two to three years, people are still showing that elevated response to pain. It hasn't gone away yet. It hasn't gone back to um, their pre-opioid norms, and that becomes very frightening. So it sounds like some of these... um, changes that happen in the body can become almost permanent, or at least very long term. And of course, that psychological craving is not the same thing as being addicted. But of people being treated for addiction to opioids, how many of those are experiencing chronic pain? So somewhere around um, 
82% of individuals who are experienced of substance abuse patients report that their addiction occurred after a prescription from their provider for pain meds. And so there's quite a bit of individuals that are now seeking treatment uh, because they started out with a pain condition that then came from an, an opioid prescription and then developed into uh, opioid use disorder. The frightening thing is as much as we we know about the statistic of 82% of substance abuse patients report that comorbid pain, we also know that only about 35% of patients that are actually experiencing OUD or opioid use disorder are actually getting treatment. So we also know that there's this vast swath of individuals out there that are not getting the treatment that they need, either due to stigma or fear or senses of shame. But without appropriate treatment, individuals that are struggling with opioid use disorder, if they have chronic pain, are two and a half to five times more likely to relapse on their opioids than individuals that are experiencing opioid use disorder without chronic pain. So there's so if we don't treat the pain and the opioid use disorder at the same time, individuals are much more likely to experience a relapse back onto the opioids. And those people, as we've mentioned, they can end up in this catch-22 where it's difficult to treat their pain and their addiction because those are separately those are typically separate treatments. Can you explain more about that situation? Absolutely. So oftentimes, for the longest period of time, training in medical schools, psychology, counseling schools. These were very; these were considered very different treatments. So whether you tr- whether you learn how to treat pain or you learn how to treat addiction, and for some reason they were never really intertwined. And so most of the providers coming out are experts in they're either pain or addiction, and there really isn't a lot of expertise in both. And in fact, that's one of the big challenges. So not only. Um, the settings are very different. So pain clinics, as you mentioned, are not set up to treat addiction. Addiction clinics don't have the training to treat pain. And in, by law, in some cases, they aren't actually allowed to treat pain, at least with medications. And other other places are maybe doing the best they can. But given that there's such a dearth of providers that know how to treat pain and addiction at the same time, both medically and psychologically, um, patients that are struggling with this often find themselves in a catch-22 of where do I go to get the treatment I need. So once they've overcome that hurdle of, yes, I acknowledge that I'm having a tough time with with using my opioids. I'm having a tough time with pain management. What do I do with this? Even then, sometimes it can be very difficult for them to find some place to get the treatment that they need. The National Institutes of Health awarded you $700,000 for clinical research on treatments for pain sufferers who become addicted to opioids. What treatments for pain and addiction are you considering? Well, we're considering a two a, a treatment component that's twofold. The first one is the psychotherapy treatment. Based on a lot of the physiological uh, studies that I've done in my lab, the psychology studies that we've done in our labs that really look at patients that are struggling with comorbid pain and opioid use disorder or co-occurring pain and opioid use disorder. And from that, we developed a 12-week rolling entry psychotherapy treatment that addresses both the pain component and the addiction component simultaneously. We we educate patients on how these two things overlap, both in the biology and the psychology. We talk about what strategies and techniques someone can use, both when they're experiencing a pain flare or when they're experiencing elevated cravings, to address those and get those get themselves through that very difficult crisis situation without relapsing. 
And so that's that's one major component of the study that we're doing. And so it's this novel, um, new technique that's really looking at combining addiction, psychology, biology, and psychology into a single treatment that can be done by a single provider in an addiction treatment center. The other piece of this study that's happening is we're developing a training program for addiction treatment therapists. Because a lot of times when addiction treatment therapists come out of their training, they have had so much training and they're excellent in what they do with addictions, but they have had no training whatsoever in pain management. And yet oftentimes the community addiction treatment centers are become the front lines for treating patients with comorbid pain and opioid use disorder. And so the second part of the study is, can we develop and train addiction addiction clinicians to also address the pain component so that they can understand how pain is influencing the opioid use disorder that the, the patient might be struggling with, how different pain management techniques may actually help the patient that's struggling with this comorbidity. Thanks, Amy. Amy Wackholz is the program director of clinical health psychology at CU Denver. Effective treatment for opioid addiction is crucial for recovery. But what about the moment of crisis? Naloxone and nasal spray can temporarily reverse the effects of an opioid overdose and give a person enough time to get to a hospital. State health leaders in Colorado are working to get the life-saving medication into the hands of more people. Robert Ballack heads the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention. Hi, Robert. Morning. You launched the Bring Naloxone Home campaign at the beginning of this month. Who do you want to bring naloxone home? We're asking everybody in Colorado to be aware of what naloxone is and to be able to have it accessible and available to save lives. We want people who are exposed to opioids in any way for any lengthy period of time. So beyond a few tablets for a week, if somebody is going to have opioids in their home for chronic pain or if somebody has a use disorder and is being treated, Uh, or is aware of a family member or friend or loved one who might be in one of those uh, categories to know what naloxone is. It's a drug that can reverse overdoses very quickly and easily, and to have it available so that we can prevent so many of the overdoses that we're seeing. So whether someone is exposed to opioids by prescription or even illegally, you're hoping that they can take naloxone home. That's right. What does someone need to do to get naloxone? Uh, we've made it much, much easier to get. All someone has to do in Colorado is walk into a pharmacy and ask for it. Uh, we have what's called a, a standing orders law, which was passed a couple of years ago, to basically create a standing prescription for everybody in Colorado uh, that wants to get naloxone to get it. So you don't have to go to a doctor and ask for a separate prescription and then go to a pharmacy and fill it. Just go straight to the pharmacy, say, I would like naloxone, and they're able to get it for you. of insurances cover it. Medicaid covers it with no prior authorization hoops to jump through. So it's very easy to get, and then people can bring it home and have it available. $325,000 is going into this Bring Naloxone Home campaign to increase public awareness of the drug and provider education. Why put that effort toward naloxone? What role does it play in combating the opioid crisis? You know, it's a really good question. We've, you know, obviously we're trying to do more, as you just heard, on the better treatment of pain up front. 
Uh, we're trying to do a much better job with treatment of use disorders on the on the what we call the back end. If someone has developed one, how do we get folks into treatment and make sure that we do a good job with that? Naloxone lives in the middle. For people who are struggling right now, may not have good pain management, may not have treatment accessibility or readiness or willingness or the means to be able to access treatment. But naloxone can keep people alive today until they're able to find and access the care that they need. I want to tackle some perceptions. What would you say to someone who says, that's a big expense to enable someone else's drug habit? And, you know, our answer to that is uh, the expense is relatively small, uh, you know, at $75 full retail, $75 a dose for a two-dose pack at $150. Uh, in, again, most insurances cover it. Small price to pay for insurance to keep somebody alive. And in terms of the enabling question, we tell people, you know, there's no evidence whatsoever that having naloxone available encourages anyone to do anything that they wouldn't already be doing except the only thing we say it enables people is enables people to keep breathing. And if that's our goal, to keep people alive long enough to get them into treatment, then naloxone is a good thing. Uh, it's hard, hard to believe that anyone thinks that that's a bad idea to, to give somebody the tools to stay alive long enough to get them into treatment. What other perceptions or attitudes make it hard for this program to gain traction? I think the two big things are, one is the the, just the stigma associated with naloxone and, and opioid abuse in general, uh, that this happens to somebody else, that people who have done this have chosen this and, and, and deserve whatever consequences they get. And so it's, you know, those people, kind of a perception that, it, that is the others, and it does not apply to me. Uh, and the stigma is a really, really steep uh, hill to try to climb. The other is that uh, this risk doesn't apply to me. I, I would never need naloxone, nor would a loved one that I have in my house. So just just doesn't apply. Uh, it's for other people that might be in need. When in fact, people who are using opioids for chronic pain at a relatively high dose, not uncommon, or might also be taking an anxiety medication, or might have a breathing disorder like apnea, or asthma, or COPD, anything that slows the breathing puts them at higher risk of an overdose. And overdoses aren't a violent allergic reaction. Overdoses to opioids are gradual slowing of respiration or breathing. And so anybody who has a breathing problem or another medication that might slow their breathing is at risk and may not even realize it. So most of this is just battling the the lack of understanding about who is at risk and that it's much more common than people think. And then just in the few seconds we have left, I wonder if you're hearing good response from the providers who you're educating. So far, we are. You know, anecdotally, I've talked to pharmacists, even talked to one uh, night before last that said, you know, did something happen? Because I just got three or four people coming into my pharmacy at uh, Colfax and Race and said they want naloxone. So it's really we're seeing that already, which is very encouraging. That's fantastic. Thank you, Robert. Thanks. Robert Valick is the executive director of the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado. It's 2019. Weed is legal. It's not that unusual to see cannabis yoga classes, guided cannabis meditations, even cannabis churches. Now, using cannabis to meditate or worship is not a new thing. Rastafarians have been using it for almost 100 years. But in this new world of legalization, what changes when we're talking about weed and religion? Find out on the latest episode of CPR's new podcast, On Something, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Artist Jordan Castile paints large, intimate portraits of family, friends, and strangers, and her work has captivated the contemporary art world. This summer has marked a major homecoming for Castile. The Denver-born artist had her first solo museum show, returning the gaze at the Denver Art Museum, featuring 30 of her paintings. Castile uses vivid colors and paints many of her subjects, all of whom are black, and the places they work, like a family-run Ethiopian restaurant a Denver barbershop, or the Harlem street corner where a man sells CDs. She wants you to slow down and notice these people. Veronica Levitt is with the gallery in New York that represents Castile. I think Jordan's sensibility for capturing the temperament of her subjects is a nuance that is rare. For Denver Art Museum curator Rebecca Hart, it's the subject's gaze she finds most compelling. Each sitter looks out at the viewer and does that in a way that it's almost as if they're asking a question or demanding your attention. And I don't see that in very many other portrait painters that are working right now. My colleague Ryan Warner sat down with Jordan Castile, who's only 29, to learn about her relationship with the people she paints. Jordan, welcome to our show. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Why laugh? Or you're in a good mood. I'm always in a good mood. I'm so excited to be here. I wonder if that's partly because, I mean, you have a, a solo show in a museum you used to visit as a kid. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I am literally coming home to... Um, an institution that I used to occupy as a child and never foresaw myself as being any of any kind of magnitude on a wall that somebody would think my name would be worthwhile to put up and that the works that I was making. Why would it not have entered your head, do you think? (laughs) It's so abstract, I think, as a young person and even as an older person to think about how it is that you get your work on the walls of a museum. It, It, a museum in and of itself seems to be a place of kind of culture keeping and a accolade teller and the value giver of what it is that you're looking at. And I never saw any or knew anyone who was doing that kind of work that was actively making work and showing in a public capacity that maybe there were creatives around. So it's just so abstract. I never thought it was something that I could do, nor did I know how to do it. We'll talk about that and and how you came to be a painter, but I I wonder what paintings you're working on now. The beautiful part about being a painter is that I get to evolve with the practice, and the practice gets to become reflective of the things that I'm thinking about. So there have been some small crop paintings happening in my studio, which are um, indicative of my commute in New York and on the subways. So they've been capturing people's hands and their gestures, um, their clothing, It's a way for me to dig into a more abstract relationship with painting. I get to just paint and play with color that they don't hold the same weight or pressure um, intellectually, perhaps, for me as the larger scale As a full portrait, Mm -hmm. yeah. So when you say a crop, you mean the hands are cropped, so that's the image. Yep, absolutely, Mm. absolutely. So when I was doing the larger portraits, I was finding instances within those big paintings that I was really... Um, drawn to that were really just the hands or a minute gesture or a stroke of color that caught my interest. So I thought, how do I make that a painting in and of itself? You know, my stepmother um, is an artist, was an artist, and she talked about how 
notoriously difficult hands are to get right. Mm, yes. Is that true? <laughs> Absolutely. What's kind of funny is my whole time in grad school, well, at least my first year, I was given a lot of criticism about my inability to draw hands. Huh. And it was that criticism and that pushing that really drove me to figure it out and to do hands. I was like, oh, okay, you tell me I can't. Like, wait till I can. What were your hands turning out like? Uh, probably wonky. There's no better word than wonky. Um, <laughs> they were just imperfected in a traditional sense that I hadn't been formally trained in drawing, really. And so I was drawing with real expression and energy that was true to myself, but wasn't necessarily representative of um, a fine drawer in the traditional sense. You had no formal art training before applying to Yale's MFA program. No, it's crazy. That's right? wacky. It's so wacky. I, I mean, in some ways... I guess no is com not completely fair in that I did take painting classes while I was at Agnes Scott College. I also took my first oil painting class my junior year in college when I studied abroad in Italy. And that's where I was like, oh, my goodness, I love painting. But when I got to Yale, I really did have to kind of start from the bottom and scrounge my way to the top that I had never stretched a canvas before. I had never... Uh, picked out paintbrushes and knew the differences between a sable or a bristol brush. And I just had to ask a lot of questions. I was a learner at Yale, and I think being a learner ultimately allowed me to um, succeed and to graduate. And um, <laughs> thank goodness that happens. <laughs> Let's talk about some of your images of Denver. Yeah. What, does Denver, like your first muse? Oh, absolutely. I think... Denver is my first muse because it is ingrained. I was born at Rose Hospital, that I literally have um, occupied the streets of Denver from the moment that I was born until I was 18 years old. The Denver community has kind of seeped into my being. And so the paintings of people in Denver felt very obvious and so obvious that I didn't do it for a long time. Um, I was painting people in grad school that were my community members there. But once I got to New York, I was thinking a lot about home um, and coming back home and painting the people that I loved here. Yeah, describe paint. a Denver painting for us. Yeah. So, for example, I'm going to get my hair cut by Marcus this afternoon. So the painting of Marcus and Jace is a pretty special one. He is sitting next to his son who is asleep um, where in his barbershop. So I went to his barbershop. I wanted to do this portrait of him and his son. We couldn't wake up his son to save our lives. We were both like poking and prodding at his son. And eventually I said, you know what, Marcus, just put your arm around him. We're just going to go with it. And I think it's a really tender moment that we ultimately ended up capturing. The sun was setting. You see the kind of light cutting across his face. You see on the background all the pennants of the schools that people bring him to put on the walls of the barbershop. And one of those pennants is of Yale, which I brought back for him. Oh. Um, and he has been somebody, Marcus in particular, took me to prom, has been in my life for many, many years. And I gave him a call two days ago when I started to scramble and said, I think I need a haircut. Can you help me out? You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And we're speaking with the painter Jordan Castile. She's from Denver and uh, has her first solo show at the Denver Art Museum. It features 30 of her paintings uh, created roughly from 2014 to 2018. Just more about your background. Your grandfather was civil rights activist Whitney Moore Young Jr. Uh, he was head of the National Urban League, an advocate for racial integration, particularly in the workplace. He died before you were born, but I wonder how you've absorbed his 
legacy of social justice as an artist? Yeah, so I think his image and him as my grandfather was really prominent in my upbringing, but not in a in a way that felt as if I needed to carry a torch as his granddaughter. It was more about how do I live um, in the values that he has shared with my mother that I never personally got from him, but has got, have gotten through my mother as a result. Your mother, Lauren Castile, who yes. has been described as the Oprah of Denver. Yes, by me, which she might be horrified okay. by. Why do you call her the Oprah of Denver? Um, Because she's fabulous. I mean, she is such a powerhouse in her own right. She has worked in philanthropy my entire life. She used to have her own TV show. We joke that Right now, as I walk down the street with her, you would think based off this exhibition that people would maybe be stopping me. But in fact, they're stopping her. And then um, <laughs> then they pass me on as a result. And she says, oh, and by the way, my daughter, she's getting ready for this exhibition. And so the legacy is something that you carry with you. It sounds like you don't feel burdened by it. No, not at all. I think and I think my parents did a really wonderful job, in particular, my mother and making sure that we understood that. It is about walking the walk, um, not just talking the talk. So doing the work in my day-to-day life and embodying. And what um, does that look like? For me, that looks like telling the stories and getting people to see people that they might not have seen before, to slowing people down and creating literal space. So my grandfather, as you said, was interested in diversifying the workplace and really bringing inclusion to the workplace. And if you think about who we walk by on the street on a day-to-day basis, we are Um, I think very frequently walking past people that we could have an opportunity to say hello to and might have actually more similarities and differences that we would perceive on first instinct. So the paintings are my way of slowing people down and making room for others and, and living with them as a result. And you literally, on the street, stop people and talk to them. Yes. And have the awkward request of, can I paint you? <laughs> yes. Which, yeah. you know, in a, in a particular setting could be quite creepy. Yes, it is. I'd I like think in most you. settings it is. I think about if the tables were turned and somebody did what I did to people, um, whether or not I would say yes. So oftentimes it looks like me walking up to somebody and saying, hi, my name is Jordan. That's like the simple start. Uh Um, And then saying, and I'm a painter and I am working on this project. You have a minute to kind of listen to what it is that I'm working on and seeing if you would be interested in participating. And You've done this in Harlem. I've done this in Harlem. I did it through email at Yale. I have done it with my students. I Every kind of different community I've occupied. And when people say no... Is it just that they're pressed for time? I haven't gotten many no's, if I'm honest. I know. It's crazy. It's baffling to me every time um, that 99.9%, I can't even recall a moment where somebody has said no. So describe for me one of the Harlem paintings. The one that I love talking about the most was the first that I made or the first person that I photographed when I was a resident at the Studio Museum in Harlem. Because that's how you start the process is photographing? I photographed the subjects and it was the first time that I made the decision to approach people I didn't know or have a connection to somehow. So I walked out on the street in Harlem and I was walking past Sylvia's restaurant and there, which is a... Kind of an institution of, of... Gospel yep. and soul food. Soul food. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I was walking by there and there was a young 
man, young old man James, was sitting out front selling CDs. The sun was shining so beautifully on him. And I walked past him at first. And then I had this whole internal dialogue where I was like, you just made a huge mistake. You have to go back right now. And I turned around and I said, hi, James, my name is Jordan. And I was wondering if I could take your portrait. I'm trying to get you on the walls of the museum. I explained what Studio Museum was and what my goals were. And when he saw his painting for the first time, it was a pretty remarkable moment because he thought it was going to be a little drawing or something. So he stood in front of his painting and he said, oh, my God, I thought this was going to be a little drawing or something. I have to go get my wife. What was the scale? The scale was probably six foot by five foot at least. So they're big. He had to look up at himself. Uh um, And that experience was clearly a profound one. So what year was that? That was in 2015. 2015. It's so quaint to be selling CDs. Yes. What's the story behind that? Well, in Harlem, the entrepreneurship that happens on the street is unbelievable. So a lot of vendors set up shop on uh, Linux Avenue and sell a wide range of things such as CDs, such as maybe hats and scarves, such as... um, I don't know, Glass Goods, Glassman Mike, who is somebody else I painted. There was Charles, who's going to be in the exhibition, and he sold furs that he would make in Canada and bring down and sell on the corner of 125th and Lenox. Mm. Um, so there's a real culture of entrepreneurship. What is it that you like about portraiture in particular? Like, do you always imagine your paintings will have a person in them? In some capacity, I always imagine that the paintings would represent my day-to-day life and and the things and the people that were around me. So portraiture and painting is just my way of slowing down and getting to know people at my own pace. And I do think in the earliest phases of my painting practice, I was doing self-portraits. When I was in Italy, I was painting the staff and my classmates. So it's always been just about my environment. More that than like a bowl of fruit. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Although bowls of fruit have been painted. (laughs) I've done that. (laughs) Is it important to make people look good? I think that's the bigger question of looking good. How do we define what looking good is? Our perceptions of beauty, our perceptions of safety or comfort or familiarity. What's most important to me is to capture the essence of the people that I'm painting. So my experience of them, um, the gesture of their pinky sticking out or the clothes that they're wearing or the, the environment that they're in, Language often appears within the works as a result because people are determining for themselves how they want to look and feel. Language? Language. There's literal written language that appears in the majority of the paintings in the exhibition. And that has not been intentional in that I have kind of snuck in secret codes. It's just the codes that are already a part of our natural world. And Give me um, a few examples. So, for example... Uh, Black is Beautiful is on the shirt of Timothy. And I think that as a community of color, we are often celebrating and memorializing and protecting ourselves, um, creating shields through the things that we're wearing, that we're affirming our existence um, by choosing to surround ourselves with language that is empowering. And that becomes evident in the clothing and in the environments that a lot of my subjects are represented in and wearing. So these are literal representations of what is on their clothing. Oh, absolutely. You're not adding things. No, no part of the painting is imaginative per se. Mm, Interesting. 
I might move things around. I might decide that that chair that was three feet to the left needs to be one foot closer. And I believe that I am a magician of sorts and being a painter and that I get to change things, that I have the autonomy to enhance what I think needs to be told, the story that needs to be told in the composition so that visually it it holds your attention as a viewer. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Portrait artist and Denver native Jordan Castile, she spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner in February, just before the debut of her first major museum exhibit here. This is your last chance to see it. It closes Sunday, August 18th at the Denver Art Museum. To add to her delight, her hometown museum also bought two of her paintings for its permanent collection. More than 100 properties in Durango may have been built with uranium tailings. The U.S. Department of Energy cleaned up uranium mill tailings in nine western Colorado cities in the 1980s and 90s. But the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment recently digitized its records, and it believes, based on those records, there are still contaminated properties in Durango. The state agency is taking the lead on further cleanup, but how did uranium end up in Durango construction in the first place? Historian and former Fort Lewis College professor Dwayne Smith lives in Durango and knows the story. Hi, Dwayne. Good morning. Durango was founded as a railroad town. How did uranium become a part of its history? Well, um, during the Cold War, it was found. Uranium was found west of town. and. the mill was used to smell it, so to speak, and they just piled it up next to what was the smelter hill. And when the wind blows, or it blew, uh, it just scattered all the way over town. I, I live a couple miles from that uh, site, and yet my yard had uh, radioactive fill in it. So the mill opened in 1943, and it permanently permanently closed in 1963. How did the mill dispose of its tailings while it was still active? You mentioned that smelter hill. Well, what they did was they uh, trucked it out, and <clears throat> the dust, you know, they put it in a truck, and the wind was blowing. It just blew the, what it was kind of a sand-like substance all over town. In fact, I live a couple miles from it. And uh, yet I had, uh, when they started to dig from my house foundation, they found radioactive soil. In the soil in your own yard? Yep. And do you remember what those piles of tailings looked like? Yeah, they just uh, looked like sand, actually. Uh, I hate to admit this, but I climbed all over it. I might be radioactive, I don't know. But anyway, uh, it was just like a very fine sand. You climbed over it, and I believe that some people used it to ski on. Is that right? They sure did. We've got pictures. It was, I, I, I'm not, not a downhill skier. I was a cross-country skier. But it, my friend said it was just like uh, going up to, to the ski areas and skiing on. So you could, you could ski year-round in Durango as long as you use that. So these must have been some incredibly tall piles of tailings. Oh, that was terrible. It was. I didn't realize how bad it was until they finally started to take some of it out, which is what caused the problem. And that, it blew. And that kind of yeah, leads to my I, next question. In the 40s, 50s, and 60s, did people know that uranium tailings were a health hazard? Well, if, if they knew it, some people suspected it, but the AAC didn't say 
anything about it, the Atomic Energy Commission, and uh, they just kept quiet about it. And, you know, they were finally forced to admit that it was radioactive. But, you know, it just did, it blew across town. It blew in the Animus River, which went right past the tailings pile, still does. And um, so it actually drifted downstream down toward Farmington, New Mexico. Well, so these must have been pretty light. And what well, else? it's just like sand. Heaven's sakes, I was on it. You know, you could, a very fine, grayish type sand. And what else do people use these tailings for? I understand they're used in construction. Yeah, they use for fill. Uh, and I understand, though I don't really know, I'm not that informative about it, but uh, apparently it worked very well uh, when you're making concrete and other things. So there's a lot of homes and other buildings that are, in fact, my neighborhood's radioactive, and I'm, as I said, a couple of miles from it. And people even felt pretty patriotic about Durango's connection to uranium. Why is that? Well, see, it was during the Cold War, and uh, actually it started during the Second World War. And according to local legend, I can't prove it, but some of the some of the atomic energy or the atomic uh, bombs were using fuel from around here. That's that's just a local legend. I don't know if it's right or not. And when do you think people started realizing that this is a health concern? Uh, there were high factors of Lung problems, lung cancer, and it was mostly down there in a town, just opposite the mill, tailings pile, where it blew across the uh, river and over into what was then known as Santa Rita in that area, south end of town. In the 80s and 90s, the U.S. Energy Administration spent millions of dollars cleaning up two dozen uranium mill sites around the country, and that includes Durango. How did people feel about the cleanup? Well, initially, uh, they were happy to get cleaned up until because there were high rates of cancer, or there there were more higher rate of cancer at that end of town than there was at I live on the north end of town, and uh, that's on the south end of town. And so I think the AEC knew what was causing it. Uh, Some doctors in town thought it might be the tailings pile, suspected it, but uh, the AEC was very secretive about what was going on over there, as it had been during the war. And uh, so we didn't really know. Do you think it's worth having another cleanup? I don't know. Because once you start disturbing it, you just disturb it. And the wind blows and up it comes again. The Durango Herald reported that the health risks of being exposed to uranium, they're hard to tease out because radon and uranium occur naturally at elevated levels in southwest Colorado. Uh, but uranium tailings in construction may put people at higher risk of lung cancer. You've mentioned that you saw people with lung cancer at a certain end of town. And I wonder, with all of this going on, have you thought about moving? No. <laughs> no, I like it down here. Taught at Fort Lewis, of course, for 50 years and no, the climate's nice, and the most of the wind blows past me here in the north end of town toward the uh, uranium pile. It's only rarity that we get the wind turns around and we get much up here. Dwayne Smith is a former professor at Fort Lewis College and a historian specializing in Colorado and its mining history. 
Finally today, a new compilation from one of Colorado's lesser-known music communities. Longmont isn't a hotspot for live music like nearby Denver and Boulder, but a new CD highlights the work of independent musicians from the city with the goal of supporting its next generation of musical talent. The Longmont Project features 18 original songs, all by Longmont artists, recorded at the city's Wind Over the Earth studios. Colorado music fans might recognize names like Bridget Law, formerly of the group Elephant Revival, and singer-songwriter Natalie Tate. Here's Tate with her contribution to the project and the song, Stand Up. Find you out there waiting for your head to roll Proceeds from the Longmont Project benefit Longmont High School's music program to provide scholarships and bring in guest musical instructors. Here's another track off the CD, the song Liza by guitarist Taylor Sims of the country band Bonnie and the Clydes. There's nothing left but a thrift store dress and a picture in a frame. The garden's gone to seed and the rest have gone insane. Longmont Project, which is out now. Thanks for joining us today on Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News. I'll never be the same.